Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I hope your holidays were great, full of food and friends and family and maybe even some football. Uh, My kids were all in town. It was great to have all of our family together. That was a real blessing. And Shade and Callie are on their way right now back to college. So I think they're listening right now. So in the car through their little system. So y'all be careful out there. Okay. So uh, keep in touch. Tell us when you make it. Um, So we're currently in the midst of a new sermon series entitled Unburdened. And I'm anchoring into this epic statement of Jesus that I've told you about, one that I am grateful for, so grateful for that I'm spending the, doing a series all the way through the end of the year, kind of inspired by it. And it's called The Great Invitation of Jesus. It's in Matthew 11, where he says, oh, these words just like, my buddy Jeremy Valdez calls it sweet honey. You know, just like when those things in scripture that just, oh, they just go deep and they just, we need them so badly. And this reminds me of him talking about verses like that. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So the set of promises that are contained in this invitation of Jesus to himself, if, if they're right, I mean, this is definitely worthy of our gratitude and thanks. The promise of some ease along the way, right? The, the promise that Jesus will lighten our heavy loads, that promise of rest for our souls. If those are true, that would definitely be worth our thanksgiving and that's what motivated me to do this series for the rest of 2021 because life is heavy life is complicated life is busy life is often difficult and too often christianity is received by christians as another load to carry yet another thing they need to do to get done only it's even heavier because eternity is in the balance And so that's not what Jesus reflects our followership of him is supposed to be about. So the the question that I'm answering in this series is, what is it about our faith that eases the burden? What is it about the gospel that actually lightens the load rather than making it heavier? What is it about our followership of Jesus that actually brings rest? It's restful for our souls. So before I reveal today that aspect of the gospel that we follow that provides us with some of this relief and rest, I want to name yet another one of the tricky things that I believe we need relief from, and that is control. It's not, I don't think it's too loud to call these things that we need unburdened from curses, the curse of control. So I was trying to think of a story that illustrated this, and it was back when I was a youth minister. Uh, I was in charge of a little third through fifth grade camp for our elementary kids. And I would always recruit six high schoolers to come and be counselors, to be staff for our little group of third through fifth graders. And in our culture, in our youth group, this was a coveted position. You wanted to go to third through fifth grade camp. You wanted to be a part of that team. And so uh, 
to narrow down, I, I would start promoting it and I'd have all of our students that were interested fill out a pretty significant application with references and, and, and things like that. There was a deadline. And so I got all those and I chose my team, three guys and three girls, and disappointed about a dozen of our kids. That's how it went every year because they, you know, for whatever reason, we just, we, we couldn't take them all, you know. So a, a couple of weeks after I had selected these six, I got a call from a mom, one of our moms, who was just in, insistent that her daughter be on that team. And just really, you know, to her, what made perfect sense of why she should be on that team. And I explained the process. This confused me because, I mean, I love this family and, and this, this, their daughter, and, but she's never shown any inclination towards children and, you know, just especially to, to invest so much in one of her summers uh, and all the time that it would take. But that was neither here nor there because I explained the process. That's just, there's just, this is how it went. And, you know, I've disappointed a bunch of girls. So I'm not going to take one of these girls out and put your daughter in, okay? Or I'm not going to create a fourth position when we don't need it in front of the seven or eight girls that are sad they're not going. I, I, and her daughter didn't even fill out an application. And she was there in the class. I mean, it was just... It, but she was not satisfied with this, but she saw she was hitting a rock wall of determination. So we got off the phone. Next day, I got a call from her husband who made an appointment to come by. I'm sure he was going to set me straight in person. And so he came into my office, and that's what he was doing. He was explaining why I was wrong to not let her daughter, his, his daughter go. And so I explained everything to him, and he, he left red face mad, like red face mad. And even accusatory, saying, I've got something against his daughter who I love, who I've given my life to in, in, in discipleship, in discipling her. And so that was hurtful, but something was going on. I couldn't get it out of him. Why is this so important? But I thought, okay, we're, we're done. Then a couple days later, I get a call from one of my elders. And this couple had gone to meet with the elders. And so he, I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to get the heavy from my elders, but I didn't. He explained, I just wanted you to know, they, they left pretty unhappy. And he was the perfect elder to be in that room because he just explained, let me tell you what's going on in my house. Because his daughter, who, who loves children, teaches in our children's program, she didn't make the cut. And so they've cried about it, that she couldn't go. She was a junior, she was going to get to go as a senior. I took all seniors, that was just one of the litmus tests I use and so anyway they just said uh, you know sorry but you're not alone here you know should I go push for my daughter to get to go as an elder you know like you and I said this is did you get why why and they didn't get why either I thought okay now it's over about the next week my cook the lady who was on my my cooking team said that this girl's mom had pushed her way onto the cooking team and I said, really? She goes, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I've got my team. We've, we've got all our assignments. We didn't really need it. But she said she felt called to be a part of the cooking team. And so she's got on the cooking team. And then a few days later, the, my cook found out that she insisted on bringing her daughter to, to camp, to, to cook on the cooking team. So I just, I, I, told, I told the girl and, and her parents, I'm sorry you can't can't do that. You get, what, what is going on? They wouldn't tell me. But sure, sure enough, when I said she can't do that, the calling from God that the mom had went away. And, uh, and she was not on the cooking team. And so I, I, I went back to the elder, told him the latest, and wanted him to know what transpired there. And 
And I said, did you, did you, have you gotten why? And he said, no, I, I never got why this was so important for them, for their daughter to be at camp. But I have noticed on things like this that they are very controlling. Right? I've just noticed that. There it is, right? That controlling. Now, I want to I affirm something. All of us, not just this, I'm not demonizing this family, okay? All of us long to control our own lives. Can we admit that? It's a part of the human condition. And, and in fact, we're even called in Scripture to take control, to be in control of certain things and aspects in our life. I think it's part of the image of God that he put in us, that we have some say, that we have some sovereignty. He is sovereign, but he's given us a little bit of his image, and we have some sovereignty, some say over our own lives, and we're supposed to use that in a kingdom-oriented way. So in and of itself, control is not a bad thing until it is, right? Until it is. So the question then is, when is it? Where is that line? That's the question from when, that moves from our capacity and calling to control certain aspects and it crosses the line into what we might sometimes call being controlling or a control freak when we're being control freaks. I've heard that term used. If it's not a bad thing, when does it become a bad thing? Because on this side, I, what do I mean by things are okay or called for? Well, I started thinking of some of the biblical concepts where our ability to control our lives are good. There's, there's even a fruit of the Spirit called self-control. Okay? So that is a, there's something there that is godly that the Spirit enables us to do and then we're supposed to grab hold of and utilize there's, there's this concept, it's not this word term in scripture, but we've noticed in our study of discipleship something called self-responsibility. That we don't go around blaming others for our mishaps. We don't do that. We are to be responsible for, our, for some aspect of our lives. The word integrity. Integrity is saying what you mean, meaning what you say. That is within our realm of control. And we're supposed to do that even when it's difficult initiative that's something that we're supposed to take we see obedience is initiative right he if god tells us to do something we are to take initiative and do that thing right we have a say in that discipline and i'm thinking of all discipline but spiritual disciplines are us doing the things that it's in our power to do to connect us to the power that's above all powers Right? So, so, anyway, that's just, there's more. I'm sure you could think of them. But when does it cross the line from good thing, good control? When does control break bad? When does it become that thing that it's not supposed to be? And I'll say it this way it's when we need things to be or go a certain way to be okay. When we need things, circumstances to be a certain way. We need people to think or do things a certain way in order for us to be okay. At that point, and this happened, that's a common experience. We all have that experience where we don't feel okay because things aren't a certain way or things haven't happened or you need something to happen or you're desperate for. We're not okay. It's at that point the temptation to do something about it is natural. 
and human. And it can flip over that line to where we put our hope in controlling that circumstance to get to a place where we're okay. When this happens, we become obsessed, even for a little bit of times, but whole lives can be characterized by this too. It can be consuming. We become obsessed with managing our existence. So we get to the point, this is the danger for Christians, that we stop trusting God to be okay because we need circumstances to be a certain way to be okay. We need people to do or say or act or believe a certain way for us to be okay. Control, hear this, never forget this. Control is God's job. Like this is why he's called sovereign God. Because control, is so anywhere even where you're rightly supposed to have some say, walk humbly. Because you are so in danger. Every one of us are in danger to taking on more than we're supposed to. Control is God's job. So if we fall into trying to control things in order to be okay, that is to feel safe or secure or confident or powerful or good or right or competent, whatever it is, When we go into that, we're entering dangerous territory where we're seeking to be God ourselves. Our culture is full of resources to facilitate our desire to control things. Some use money. Money, like God, is powerful. Money, like God, makes things happen. Money, like God, moves things. And so you can see why that's the word Jesus chose when he says you can't serve God in something. You can't serve God in anything else, but he put money in that sentence. Some use money for their sense of security. Some use power to control things. They work towards positions of influence or authority, or they befriend people, or they lobby people like these parents, these sweet parents did with my elders. They lobby people with authority so that things can go as much like they think it should is possible. Some use sexuality to control people. We have to mention that. Because knowing that beauty and desire can be like mesmerizing and, and it can be a coercive force to keep others addicted to them or behaving as they want to behave, that can happen. Some use words, masterfully using narrative or overt lies to manipulate outcomes to get things to go or get people to do what they want them to do. Some use guilt and shame. Others use obligation and duty. That The list, the hit list of resources available to us in this world to deploy in order to manage other people's lives or manage our circumstances or control outcomes are almost endless. And let's just bring it into this room, the, the religious room, okay? So historically, there's lots of examples where religion has been used by men to control men, right? Like where religion, there, there's some epic historical moments where religion has been utilized. But more common than that, way more common and frequent and might live in this room is we fall into the trap of using religion to control God. You follow what I'm saying? There's a quote from a guy named Sky Jathani. He's an author who wrote a book called With. Jerry Morgan did a class on this book once. It was great. 
He claims that fear and control are the basis for all man-made religions. Each one is an attempt to overcome suffering, fear, and death by exerting control over natural and sometimes supernatural forces. In other words, in other words, we fall into the trap that if we're good enough or if we pray enough or if we follow the religious rules well enough, then we handcuff God into doing what we want. He's, he's, it's incumbent upon him. If, if I do these religious things, supposedly how I'm thinking the way he wants, to a minimum level of standard, then he is handcuffed to heal my sick family member. If I just pray right enough, or to save my soul, if I'm just behave enough, or go to church enough, or rescue me from some other undesirable situation. When I think of that sweet family, and I, I do love that family, who really seem to need their daughter to go to that third through fifth grade camp to be okay. Though I'd like to think, and maybe you'd like to think, I'd never do that. I'd like to think that. I, the instinct that they were operating on, it's gripped my heart many times. And that instinct is fear. It's fear. They were afraid of something that they were trying to remedy. Fear is at the root of our desire for control. We have a fear of being left out. We've got a fear of failure. We've got a fear of rejection, a fear of being a bad parent, the fear of that a loved one will leave us, that the person we're dating or married to will lose interest, that, we, that we're not good enough or likable enough or competent enough. We have the fear that our elected officials will destroy our economy or lead us into a war or outlaw Christianity or make the market crash or we fear our church is being unduly influenced by the world or is she's drifting into liberalism or she's stuck in maintaining a legalism. We're afraid. And so we need to do something about it. We need to control things so that we alleviate that fear we're inclined to do something so that we can guarantee a circumstances that makes us not have to be afraid anymore it's as human as breathing to not want to be afraid so when we think seriously about the complexities of what's going on in our culture right now it is easy to let a spirit of fear grip our hearts another book it's called surrender to love David Benner says this. He says, people who live in fear feel compelled to remain in control. They attempt to control themselves and they attempt to control their world. Often, despite their best intentions, this spills over into efforts to control others. Fear also blocks responsiveness to others. The fearful person may appear deeply loving, but fear always interferes with the impulse to love. This sentence, energy invested in maintaining safety and comfort always depletes energy available for love of others. Remember I told you, I think it was last week, I told you about the computer program and you've got all those windows and there's one window you can't see that's just using way too much of the computer's energy and keeping it going, but that's, that's what control can be. Just this invisible force that's constantly stressing, constantly hurting and all that investment in needing things to be a certain way depletes energy it depletes energy so here's the deal with control first it doesn't work it doesn't work everyone i meet 
that tries to mitigate their fear by controlling things, and I mean when I meet me trying to mitigate my fear by controlling things, but everyone I meet, it's easier to see in someone else than in yourself, of course. Everyone I meet that needs things to be a certain way in order to leave my office okay. And this is true for those who've done a great job at it. Like they've really worked situations to where it's going the way they would design. Even those people who are doing a great job at controlling their circumstances and the people that they love and it's going the way they think, even they are the most stressed out, unhappy people that I've ever been around. They're exhausted. They're anxious. And they're those that describe their lives with these words. Right? They most often, e- even if they've got it right, even if things are good, you know, you say, how you doing? They'll say, you know, it's going good. But you know, this, tell me if you've said this. You don't have to tell me, but tell me. I'm just trying to hold it all together. Right? Even if I've got it down, it's, it's right where I want. Well, I'm just trying to hold it all together. I worked at Toys R Us when I was a kid. This is just for free. I was working at Toys R Us, and you didn't want the 300 section because that's the transformers and all the stuff the kids take out and play with. So I got there and I, I got it. You know, our job is to make it all look good. I got it all looking good. And I said, I'm not moving from this aisle because I want to hold it all together. It's going to, I'm going to be a very unhappy. I'm going to make a lot of kids unhappy because I don't want to do this work again today. It is a lot of work to hold things together. And, and that leads me to the second thing about control. There are things outside of our control. This is a huge dilemma for people who control things. And and oftentimes, they do not accept it. There is something I can do. That is the ultimate stressed out person that I meet. The one who is just determined. They just have it in, in their DNA. They know there's something they should be doing. It's something we can do that can, can control this unfavorable situation. I mean, even that phrase, trying to hold it all together, that's God's job. Like, he has the shoulders large enough to take care of everything. We don't. I've got a verse for it. Colossians 1 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That should be like a red flag when you say that. I'm just trying to hold it all together. I can't think of anything more exhausting than trying to be God. Okay? I just can't think of anything more exhausting. Tried it. It's exhausting. And lastly, and most importantly, control undermines, this is most important for Christians, it undermines our opportunity to exert faith. Control, the more I was trying to unpack this this week, control is almost the exact opposite of faith. Control requires no trust in God because it's on me. Faith requires trust in God. So you can't have control and faith. You can't have it. And this epic statement in Hebrews eleven six: without faith, it is impossible to please God. That means without trusting God, it is impossible to please God. You know, that when, when, people, when people take off the mask and share with me something, I can tell it's really difficult to share and it's a little scary. Nothing, I'm... I'm I can't think of, those in my men's group, y'all know, I can't think of anything that's more honoring for me, to be trusted. And it just struck me just now with this, that I think that's what God, how God feels. 
You want to love God? Trust God. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to believe him. He wants you to trust him. I think that's how we love him. And that makes sense then, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. A little bit earlier, there's a little description of faith. It's not necessarily a definition of faith, but it's a good description of faith. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So I took that description. I was like, if I was going to write the bizarro Bible, right? Like the, the opposite of what the Bible says. And I was on this Hebrews 11.1. 1, I was going to rewrite it in the bizarro kind of way. This is how I would say it. Control is making happen what we hope for and bringing about what we do not see. That's, that's the opposite. Control undermines the thing that allows us to experience God, let alone please him. Control undermines faith. So what's the antidote? Spent a lot of time describing the problem. What part of the gospel, what is it about our followership of Jesus that is the antidote for control, for a spirit of control? Well, it's a spirit of surrender. Surrender. Surrender is that posture of the heart that humbly trusts God in order to be okay. It's where we allow God the throne that we're trying to occupy and allow everything to be precisely as it is and may be okay. Everything can be exactly how it is in my life, with my children, the state of their belief in Jesus, the, my financial situation, political situation, the world situation, pandemic or not, everything can be, surrender is, everything can be exactly how it is, and I'm okay. You know, it's not magic dust there. It can only come through trust in God and surrendering to him. To believing in him. Remember we said we cross that line that control goes bad when we need things to be or go a certain way to be okay? Surrender is humbly trusting God in order to be okay. So the life of faith and trust in God with your life and your circumstances, it is, it is the most peaceful way to live. I don't know another way. I don't know another way to find the peace. Maybe that's why Paul called it the peace that passes understanding. Because all of your circumstances could still be seen as dire. And it would be justifiable for you to be all those words based on your circumstances. And so maybe that's why Paul calls it a peace that passes understanding. And you, accept, you, you access that peace, that life, through surrender. I wish I could, I wanted to. I wanted to outline for you today the, the five steps on how to surrender your will to God or the seven stages of trusting God so that you can find relief. But this is one of those things that we can just talk about and you learn to surrender by surrendering. And the good news is, you, you can have plenty of opportunity. You probably already have it right now. And if not, it's coming soon. And then if you fail or succeed in that, you'll get another one. And then you get another one. 
You learn to surrender by surrendering. This part of the gospel is so beneficial. So I can't tell you the steps to it, but I can tell you uh, this deeply inward and personal kind of action. I can tell you these things about it. One, you know when you need it when you're not okay with your circumstances. That's easy, isn't it? Whenever you find yourself not okay with your kid or your parent or your situation or that diagnosis or the outcome of that election or whatever, whenever you, whenever you find yourself, that's, boom, that you need to remember this sermon. That's when you need to practice surrender before you do anything else. You might, you might actually have something else you need to do, but if you do it before you surrender, then you will carry a weight you're not supposed to rather than contribute to something that God's calling you to. So you know you need it when you're not okay with a circumstance. Second, when you need it, you'll feel resistance. Every single time. You will feel resistance because surrender to God is opposed. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole spiritual warfare thing here, but there's, there seems to be some forces that work against us surrendering. That same force is speaking to us little arguments that make perfect reasonable sense to do something and put your hope in doing it rather than in God. So you know you need it when you're not okay with something and you will feel resistance and it will make perfect sense to resist it. And then last, you'll know you've done it because without any circumstances changing at all, without that person doing what you just needed them to do, you're okay. You're okay. This is one of the most exhilarating, miraculous experiences in my Christian walk. It usually comes, depending on the intensity of how much I want it, surrender comes with tears. Sometimes it comes with heavy breathing. Right? It comes with tears. Because it feels so wrong, because it's opposed, it's wrong to let this go. But then it quickly moves. When I start moving into surrender, it moves into this, like, disbelief. Because it, it feels like, now one thing's changed that I needed changing, and yet it feels like I'm, I'm moving towards okay. Like, I, I almost want to pull back, I can't be okay. But, but then I, I want to give in, because I really need to be okay, and controlling it hasn't worked. And, and so when I give in, and I feel it then, then it feels, surrender feels like exhilaration. It feels like cloud nine. Why? Because that person didn't do what you just needed them to do. They didn't stop what you just needed them to stop. That circumstance did not have to, did not become what you just needed it to become and you are okay. You know what happens after that exhilaration? What Jesus promises in his great invitation. Rest. Rest. Sometimes, literally for me, it's sleep. I can sleep again. But you learn how to do it by doing it. Let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses, go ahead and move around the room. We'll have some up in the balcony. If you've got something you're carrying that maybe you just need to confess it interpersonally. That's what these trusted allies of yours in this walk are here for. If you, you want to accept that invitation of Jesus for the very first time, that's, they'll walk you right through that too. But they, they make this awkward walk around the room just so that you know who they are. 
that we want to pray with you. We want to be here for you if you need a touch. So let me just ask, are you tired? Are you, are you exhausted trying to be okay by willing things to be a certain way? Are you tired by making certain, trying to make certain circumstances a reality or, or just by trying to hold it all together? Are, are you exhausted? Are you weary from that tenseness in your gut, that constant movement of your brain, hoping the worst doesn't happen constantly or needing the best to happen constantly? If you're tired, then I want you to hear the great invitation of Jesus. And again, I'm taking liberty to tweak it to fit just this, this part the surrender thing. Come to me. All you who think you need things a certain way and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and surrender control to me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my lordship is easy on your soul and dependable so my burden is light gospel's good. Amen. Let's surrender to him. Let's stand and let's commit to it in song.